Welcome to the Indie Writer Podcast, where we talk about all things writing and indie publishing. Today, we are excited to be talking about writing complex villains with J.F. DeBoe and Anna Mossacat. Anna Mossacat is the award-winning, internationally published author of Behind Blue Eyes, the Tales of the Shadow City series, and the MUC series. Before becoming a novelist, she graduated from film school and worked as a screenwriter and game writer for over a decade. Anna lives in Greenville, South Carolina. J.F. DeBoe is a writer of science fiction and paranormal horror. His debut novel, The Life Engineered, was chosen for the Sword and Laser Collection on Inkshares. His second book, A God in the Shed, was chosen as part of the top 20 horror novels of 2017 on Goodreads and has been optioned for television to be produced by Akiva Goldman. He's also the writer of the Arch Willow podcast, a cozy horror fiction podcast. Song of the Sandman, the sequel to A God in the Shed, is to be released in October of 2021. So I'm so glad you're both here to start. I'd just love for both of you to share your experience with writing villains and where your love of crafting villains comes from. Anna, do you want to kick us off? Um, Yeah, sure. So why do I love villains? Because nobody loves them otherwise and they all, everybody needs some love, even villains. I don't know. I just enjoy writing them very much and I think that's something I'm pretty good at. At least that's what I've been told. I even, so you see my my villain walking in in, in the back, Um, that's uh, Yuri and I had the fantastic idea to name my dog after one of my villains in one of my books. Uh, Her name is Yuri Dees and uh, readers really like her and I had the fantastic idea to name my dog uh, like that and that yeah she behaves like a villain now so it's it's it was really it was really a crappy idea I will never do that again but anyway so I love diving into the dark sides of of humans and I really enjoy discovering um, why villains are as they are and I also believe that an antagonist almost as important for the story as the protagonist so um, it's very important to to really uh, work on them and 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 make them believable. So um, that it's I think it's in, in general important and it's particularly important for me. And um, my best villain is in my um, Beyond Blue Eyes series. His name is Metatron, and um, yeah, he is. He turned out so well that that he is the second uh, favorite character um, by, uh, of readers of, of this book. Uh, and he comes before the main character so um i think i think i think i did a good job with him <laughs> and i really really love him but yeah <laughs> how about you jf how did your where did your love of villains come from I, I like villains because i like to think that if if the relationship between an antagonist and a protagonist were a dance the villain or the antagonist is really the one leading the dance always choosing where the movements are where the story goes and having all that i'm not good at dancing so my analogy is falling apart as i'm telling it but i think you can understand what i mean like the the villain is the one who really sort of drives the action and the hero sort of follows along with it so villains are they're not just important but they're also become very interesting and a good villain much like a good dancer will have the quote-unquote fluid movement to make it seem like the hero or the, the follower has equal say in the decision like the, it becomes seamless who who's leading the motion and who's not but in the back of the, 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 the writer's mind and 
in the back of the reader's mind, it's, it's clear who's actually like leading everything. It's always the villain. That's awesome. That's an awesome explanation for a villain. Fantastic. I, I absolutely agree 100%. It really should, in, 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 a, in a good story, it should be a dance. Absolutely. Great. Could you tell us about some of your favorite complex villains? We heard, Anna, a little bit about the ones in your own work, but maybe in other people's work too. Who are some of your favorites? So um, my all-time favorite villain, uh, it's maybe pretty pretty cliche, but uh, is and always will be Darth Vader. This guy scared the crap out of me when I was a kid and watched the movie for the first time. I, I don't know, I was maybe six or something like that so so yeah he gave me nightmares uh, but but um that was basically when my love for villains was born because i was so fascinated by this character so that definitely is is, is a fantastic villain from more recent stuff i don't know if any of you ever watched the boys um this uh, the tv show the boys i think it's a fantastic show i love it it's uh, it's great but there is the villain there um his name is homelander he is he he pretends to be a superhero but in truth is a super villain and um i i absolutely love this character i love how how the uh, authors have created him uh, it's it's so good it's 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 really a villain with uh, so so much depth you hate him and you love him at the same time so this is for me an uh, a prime example of really really good writing yeah what about you jaya i f i think one of my favorite villains at least from recent years is the the, the two characters two characters in the movie the Denis Villeneuve movie uh, blade runner 2049 the the main villain, so to speak, played by Jared Leto, uh, Neander Wallace, um, is villainous in very classical, very three-piece suit businessman kind of way. And, and his henchman Love, which is one of his replicants, is more of a direct, violent henchman villain. But what I like about this this villain and the dynamic that's crafted, one thing that's very interested when you interesting when you watch the movie is you realize that the the bad guy, the villain, Neander Wallace, never meets the main character, the hero played by, by Ryan Gosling, uh, Kay. They never interact. They never meet face-to-face. -face. They're barely aware of one another. And yet, every time one of them does something, it has a direct or indirect impact on the other and the dynamic between them. And as far as I'm concerned, that is such a brilliant way of playing with the hero-villain relationship. And Jared Leto can be uneven as an actor, but he has such a way of portraying that character in a detached, cold manner that makes everything that the character does believable. So that's an uh, um, awesome villain. And I think it's a very interesting thing um, what you say, that they never meet, but they are still... I mean, he's he's the antagonist, basically. The the, the chick is just like the henchman, but uh, the um, Wallace is the antagonist in the movie, and they never meet. So And it's still working really, really well. So uh, I think that's a very good example. Very good villain writing, actually. When you're crafting your stories as two people who love writing villains, what comes to you first? Does your villain come to you first or does your antagonist come? And then how do you um, make sure that they're foils for each other? And how do you start to kind of flesh out those characteristics within each? I have this weakness where I have very uh, a lot of difficulty crafting one without the other. Seeing as 
the way the way I try to build my stories is very dependent on, on the characters and their journey. And obviously, one like an antagonist and protagonist journey are tied together. So it's very difficult to not have like to come not like to come up with one and then try to patch in the other one. Um, this becomes even more complicated if you have like multiple antagonists, multiple characters that can qualify as a protagonist. But all in all, if, if I'm trying to look at like the general arc of the entire story, I come up with the arc first and then the villain and the hero that need to fit that arc kind of just fall into place, if that makes any sense. So for me, I really, um, the villains are almost more important for me than the, than the uh, protagonists. Um, in, in Shadow City, the villain is even on the cover. So the cover is very, um, it's, it's a very strong cover. And there is this, this woman on the cover and everybody thinks that's the hero of the story. But no, uh, when you read it, you will realize, no, that's actually the villain. However, what is very important for me is that they have a variety of different traits and a variety of, of char different characteristics. They're not, they're not just evil. So as much as I like Darth Vader, but he's really, he's pure evil, right? So he's, he's an extremely archetypical um, bad guy. He redeems himself at the end, but he still is like, yeah, like the boogeyman, basically. But so what I prefer is to, to make them a little bit more human and with Behind Blue Eyes, which is probably my, my best book, my best story, I have designed this, this story uh, as, as a story of, of the protagonist and the villain. They are both like hero and anti-hero of the story. So it's not so clear in the first book, but becomes clear in the second book um, that it's a story of two people, actually. And for me, the goal was to make readers love the villain of the story. So you know he is, he is the bad guy, he does horrible things, he is sadistic, he is ruthless and whatnot. But he still, you still can't different but really like him. And I hear it from so many people who say like how much they like this character and, and also say, oh my God, he's so right with what he's saying. And that's why I say, okay, that's, that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted him to pull you over to the dark side. So um, Darth Vader is pretty bad at pulling people to the dark side because he's like too evil. Um, whereas uh, Metatron, I created him so he is really able to do that. And he is tickling the dark side in every one of us and the desire to to live this this dark side we have. Yeah, I love that. And I, that's my favorite kind of villain. I was thinking when we were talking about our favorite villains of White Rose from Mr. Robot and how like you're never even really sure if she's the villain or not, like until very late in the series. And then I was thinking about a tweet that I saw about how like Magneto from X-Men, we haven't really talked about books. We've been talking about a lot of <laughs> movies and TVs or TV shows. Um, the tweet said something about like, Magneto kind of became an anti-hero because people started to realize that he was right, like with how politics are going in the real world. And so I was going to ask, because I love how you can draw people to the dark side. I love that idea you're talking about. But how do you like still kind of make it clear that that's the villain, you know, like how do you not just have it come across as like a conflict of interest? I'm wondering if you have some maybe like craft tips for how to make somebody so relatable, but still have it be 
clearly somebody's right. So yeah, there are definitely uh, craft aspects to that, and there are things everybody can can use easily. So so let's start with like if, if you want to have a villain who is clearly super evil, everybody will hate this villain, and you you want to establish this is definitely a horrible person. So the easiest way, and 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 you can't redeem this person after that ever again. That's a villain you will never redeem. If you want that, um, the easiest way is you let this um, this villain either hurt a child or kill an animal, ideally a dog. Um, if you if you if you introduce a villain that who kills a dog, you will never never get the audience back to this person. So this is the easiest trick. Maybe hurting children is too much for for most of us, but um, you can uh, have the villain hurt an animal. Most people love dogs. You can also pick a cat. A hamster would be probably not enough, um, but um, or a horse also works. You left the villain um, torture or kill an animal, and you have the ultimate bad guy. Nobody will ever like him ever again uh, so this is this is one thing you can you can use another thing is um, if you want a villain people like um, that's of course more more tricky um, to achieve so um, what I do with Metatron is he says many things similar to Magneto actually he has a very good reason why he is who he is and that it's something always worth bringing in when you when you write a villain is um, give them a backstory that made them like this and and made them who they are but not necessarily the victim thing because that's a little bit like you know we have seen that a million times like I don't know a person has been abused as a child and now as a psychopath that's like give them a little bit of a, a more um, unique story but give them a backstory that led them to be uh, what they what they are then so in, 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 my, in my case I have him do clearly horrible things he is really uh, he's really very sadistic. That um, that's something about him. But on the other hand, he is extremely sophisticated and very very intelligent so you begin thinking oh maybe he's right about what he's saying and maybe the means he's using are necessary so this is how you can tickle that in a little bit and in the end you can also have a shocker in the end where you show who this person really is and 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 really have the your audience your readers be like oh shit and i really like this guy oh Okay, so I I totally fell for this. This is something you can you can play with um, a lot, I think. But um, what helps is giving them a good backstory, and um, the more more work you put into that in advance, the easier it will be for you to to write um, the villain later. Yeah, I'll, I'll piggyback on what Anna's saying. Like basically, the idea of to to really drive in the point that your villain is obviously a villain is this reverse save the cat. Uh, approach where instead of having your hero quote-unquote save a cat early on in the story to demonstrate that they're the hero you do the reverse you have them do something irredeemable whether it's killing an animal or hurting a child or it could be it could be any number of things that fits the thematic of what you're writing as long as it's got this this irredeemable stamp of approval one of the things I, I like to do is play with kind of the, the dichotomy between creating empathy for the villain to kind of like Anna was saying, like to make you un understand, like always 
create sim empathy but never sympathy so that people understand what the villain is why he's doing the things he he's doing give him an internal logic that makes the reader sort of question whether or not what he's doing is truly villainous basically sneak the open the back door to the character and have your readers sneak into the mindset of the villain and and put them in this perhaps it's because I write horror but put the reader in this uncomfortable position where not everything is black and white so you've got this framework where your villain's done something irredeemable so the reader cannot say oh it's it's fine that he did this thing but at the same time have to also work with this this idea that they understand why things happen the way they happen and th these kind of conflicts these kind of like this juggling act that you force upon the reader is i feel where you get like a lot of meat out of your villains right well and it, it's kind of backing up on on becca's you know observation it's funny magneto came up in our superhero episode too just as this like character that's so complex we were like i get where he's coming from and i think there are like those two types of villains there's people that like writing villains who are like addicted to power and are evil for the sake of being evil and those who legitimately believe that what they're doing is kind of an ends justify the means situation. Um, so have you played with both? Or it sounds like both of you really like those villains who think they're doing the right thing or think that the wrong things they're doing are justifiable for their results. In A God in the Shed, I tried playing with both in the sense that the original plan was to have sort of the human element be kind of more like that gray area of people that we can understand why they're doing villainous things and have the, the titular God just be such an alien presence that they were pure evil in, in the sense that they don't understand the difference between good and evil. And that was kind of why they were doing the things they did. And the reason behind that is that I I have trouble believing, like, no matter how dumb or misguided or ignorant people are, no one wakes up in the morning and says, I am going to do something evil unless, you know, they're, they're, they're sociopaths or so psychopaths. So, and even, even those people probably have some kind of mental gymnastics that they go through to justify to themselves why they're doing it. And usually through narcissism or anything, thinking that they are the only person important. Nobody thinks of themselves as evil. Everybody thinks of themselves as justifiably good. So I needed to create something non-human and even then it felt too hollow to write it as just purely evil. And, and, and I think that this is why we're seeing, if we're going, let's go back to Magneto. This is why Magneto went from kind of more of a stock supervillain back when the X-Men were just a, a new thing, like classic superhero story, and has grown in complexity and like slid into this gray area because... You, can, you can't spend, what, 50 years telling the same story about the same villain without at some point giving him motivations that are more than just getting up in the morning, cackling to oneself and going off to do evil. Yeah, absolutely. I think bad writing will be always black and white. I mean, that's 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 just you can rec recognize bad writing and bad, especially bad character design that it's uh, um, purely black and white. Unless maybe, you know, in children's stories where you really want to be moral and teach something then then that's different but otherwise black and white is always um 
never a good idea. So the gray zone is very important. I think the gray zone is important for heroes, but it's even more important for, for villains and anti-heroes. And I agree uh, with that. I, I um, totally agree with that. Most villains don't think of them that they are evil. And that's something um, you can just study um, really bad guys from history and uh, you will always find that they thought they are doing good they, they always thought think they are doing the righteous thing and they're doing the the right thing um the necessary thing in whatever way the, the biggest mass murderers dictators and so on none of them were was aware that they are evil they thought they're doing good and in truth they did evil and that makes it really really interesting when uh, villains actually um, believe they are heroes and in truth they do horrible things so um, that's 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 the gray zone um, um, what uh, was just mentioned I think um, on the other hand you also can um, use the ultimate evil. It depends on what genre you're you're, um, you're writing. But in some in, in, in some books and some stories, it actually works well. Like like in in, in fantasy, often horror, um, you can use um, the ultimate evil. Sometimes, I mean, take just take let's let's take uh, as example Lord of the Rings. We have been talking about movies, so this is one of the most famous books ever. And we have Sauron, and he is ultimate evil. There is nothing good about this guy, and he knows he is uh, he is evil. He wants to control and rule everybody, and he wants to destroy, and he knows he is destructive. So this is the ultimate evil guy. So you can have that in, in certain scenarios. Probably not when you want to write something realistic, but in, uh, in in fantasy it works really well. And I have in my in my Shadow City series, I have villains uh, who are have a lot of different um, shades to them gray zone they're mostly in the gray zone but i also have um the, the ultimate evil they they are called the dark one they come from another world they come from another dimension and they feed on human suffering so they want humans to, to suffer as much as they can because that's basically their their food um, they get stronger when others suffer so um, you can do that. I mean, they are ultimately evil. They know they uh, they are evil um, and they're totally okay with it. You can do it. It can work, but it, it doesn't work for every story and every uh, every constellation. That's it's kind of like my point of view, like from their point of view, maybe they know what they're doing is is wrong and bad. They need to feed. So they have a motivation like evil it's not evil for evil's sake they still yeah. have a need that they're meeting right. well i mean they they also enjoy it i mean it's it's they just want to kill everyone and and i mean they also you know they they also torture people or uh chop off their heads and play bowling with the heads and stuff like that so they're really evil and and they they have no no problem with it they're like okay so we're evil so what we will kill everybody anyway we will win so uh, that's that's how they are but um usually usually i that's that's an exception usually i don't write villains like that who are really pure um evil they were just um 
in this story, it was just very fitting because they also come from from another world, and they're really. I wanted to create creatures who have a completely different mindset than than we have. Like, yeah, they basically live on an, in another world. Yeah, I'm interested. I know that you talked earlier, kind of about some of the the basic, like, kind of reverse save the cat that you can do to show someone is evil. But how do you kind of avoid some of the villain tropes? And then where in your life do you draw inspiration? Like, have you ever, you know, based characters off of people that you know? Or have you ever just, like, drawn traits from from the real world? What does that process of building a villain look like for you? Um, so I have very often, uh, it's not really villains, it's rather like like uh, the little assholes who will die a horrible death. Um, so those people are very often based on people I know, and um, that's nobody will ever know it but me, and I just I'm just having fun with it uh, to do that. Uh, but in my in my uh, first uh, series, uh, I I wrote the the NUC series that is uh, available only in German. Um, actually, this is funny because I based it's based the villain or the antagonist on a guy I knew in real life, and he was really a horrible person and. I totally hated him and he was mean and whatever. So I, I took him and um, basically described him 100%. And then my editor, my editor at the publishing house, I was with um, a big traditional publisher. And um, she said, well, so I love everything about the story, uh, but we need to work on the villain because he doesn't seem realistic to me. And uh, that was really funny because I just described the guy as he was. Okay, I put him into a dystopian story so he could do more bad things than he could do in real life. But um, it was it was too much. I had I had to to make him less evil um, uh, for the story. So <laughs> I had the exact same experience actually in my first draft that I gave to my editor of On Home. There was like an asshole boyfriend. Okay. And it was like, all of the comments were like, he is too, like, too much of an asshole. He's just a trope of a bad boyfriend. And I was like, yes, exactly. And he was based on <laughs> an ex. So I had to, I mean, he ended up not in the story at all. But I had to make the person less of an asshole to make the person based on a real person realistic. I've never really uh, taken any person verbatim as an example, like of a template for a character what I have done is if I have a character that's crafted in a certain way and I need in a scene to have a, a quirk, a behavior, or that they do something, and I remember someone I know having done something that would have that would fit in there. Like I may I may pick up an anecdote, I may, may pick up a mannerism or something and use those uh, in in a certain way instead of using um, character like whole cloth people from real life i i have a tendency to deconstruct the people i meet and encounter in my life into in, into their ingredients and then have these ingredients available when when i'm crafting character when i'm crafting a scene I've only ever i've named a character after someone i know but that was a contest i was running and it was very clear that that person i would be using their name on a character that has nothing to do with them and i would be killing that character of all the contests of all the marketing ploys i've used this was by far the most successful people really wanted to die
that's a very very nice idea actually um what i would like to talk about maybe because that could be helpful for for um authors who are still starting out and and maybe have uh, difficulties writing villains maybe uh, we can talk about what you should not do uh, because there are a lot of traps you can fall into and then and then it's difficult to get out of there so i, I think there are certain villain tropes which are really cliche and there is other stuff which is even worse than cliche and you should never do so so i i, I would start with one and so um i think what is horrible and what you should never 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 ever do is that the villain will tell the hero his plan that's just you know we that was, the last time that was acceptable was in the 60s when the the bond villains so mr bond before i kill you i will tell you everything i've I planned and so on. And and then the hero will escape and will. So please don't do that ever. Okay. That was okay in the 60s. It's not okay anymore. Never let your, your villain tell, tell the story. I mean, show don't tell is definitely important for, for everything in, in, in writing. And it's also important if you want to, to have the villain do bad things, let him do bad things, let him, um, play out his plan if you want the whole plan to show but don't let him talk about it don't let him explain it also this so not necessarily the tell the plan he wants to do don't let him explain why him why he did it and so on this has to to be clear from his actions and also maybe what dialogues and so on but never let the villain talk about um himself why he's doing stuff and and why not and the second thing is um don't don't let the villain be stupid don't let the uh, the hero win over the villain because the villain suddenly becomes stupid and does really stupid mistakes make your hero smarter than the villain and uh, make them outsmart them or, or stronger physically or whatever so they can beat them out of their own strengths But not because the villain suddenly, you know, is the, he's the super villain over 300 pages. And then suddenly at the end, he makes a mistake that doesn't fit to the character so, that, so the hero can win. That's sloppy writing. Never do that. There would be two things to start with um, what not to do. I, I don't have a, a very big list of don'ts. I, I, I feel that any author that's self-aware, there's always a way of doing, of, of exploiting a trope, but you need to be aware of it. But that's, that's a different way. Like, like um, what you're saying is absolutely true. Like, don't have your villain spill out his guts and tell his plan unless you're aware that you're doing that where you're part of what you're doing. Either you're doing it for humor or there's some con convoluted, clever way you're doing it. I couldn't come up with one. So that's, definitely in my list of don'ts. The one thing I would say is never lose track of what your villain wants. Whatever drives your villain should never, like it, it should never slip from your fingers. It should always be there in the back of your mind to guide your villain's actions. We see that a lot of the time where the villain is relegated to sort of a second, like second importance As far as characters are concerned, he's the villain, so he's there to drive the plot. And because he's there to drive the plot, if at some point I need him to do something 
villainous for X, Y, Z reason because I needed to move the plot in a certain direction, then I will do it even if it goes against the villain's own best interest, his own motivations, and his own wants. And you see that a lot. Like, it's easy to slip that way because as a writer, you want your plot to go in the direction that you've planned. And you're also kind of rooting for your for your characters to succeed where you want them and fail when you want them. So you whenever you're stuck with a situation where you need to have one character act a little bit out of character, go against his own motivations, people have a tendency to go, well, it's the villain, so I can do that because it's the villain. But that just sticks out like a sore thumb. It's very, it's very jarring for the reader. So if there's anything I would say you need to avoid is losing track of your villain's motivations. Going back to my initial analogy, if he's the one driving the plot and suddenly he goes from, say, a, a waltz to a tango, it doesn't work. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. Uh, there is only one exception. You can do that if you foreshadow it. I think foreshadowing is like one of the most, most important uh, writer ingredients. It's extremely important. So you can have your villain uh change the course and dance a tango at um, at the last uh, third of the book if you have foreshadowed it in, in a certain way. So um, whatever it is, you know, that maybe suddenly, suddenly he will show a soft side you never expected of him. Or the opposite, <laughs> you have a careful, meticulous villain that suddenly gets very angry and very impulsive to the hero if you build up to that as keep showing an increasing anger towards the hero now what you're saying is absolutely true like the idea of foreshadowing and weaving in reasons for the villain to do it that's the thing like you're weaving in a different motivation into his initial motivation i'm not saying that the villain needs to remain static towards the story it just whatever he does needs to fit with who he is yeah, it shouldn't be out of the blue, right? Mm. Let him let him be a person. I mean, he's still a person. He is he is maybe evil, maybe he's horrible, but he's still a person. And and love him. I, that's what I said in the beginning. Why I like writing villains. Everybody needs love, even villains do. And I dearly love my villains, especially Metatron and and Behind Blue Eyes. He's my boy. I absolutely love him. So he is. Um, we talk to each other and and. Um, Okay, that sounds crazy. I know, but we yeah, all you're do talking that. to three other writers. You're fine. <laughs> we all do that. Uh, we have our characters talk in our head, and uh, so also do that with the villain. Even if if they are nasty, and even if they are if they do horrible things, and always remember every horrible thing that comes out of of the villain is coming out of you. It's always a part of you. It's always your dark side that will um, go in there. So so play with it and have fun with it because that's 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 your way to 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 be the dark side basically you have to feel it the, the more you feel it the um the better it will work and the more um exciting it will be for the readers so give your give your villains love really hug them and tell them good boy you're doing well i would love to know um just for our listeners if there are any resources or writing craft books or anything that have helped either of you with this topic um i know we mentioned save the cat has there been anything else that you've kind of turned to to build your characters or to just, yeah, come up with your villain's arc or anything like that? 
Um, so I have a Bible, and that's a story by Robert McKee. It's uh, about screenwriting, but I, I am originally a screenwriter, so I come from, I, I use a lot of screenwriting techniques when I write novels. And uh, this is a book I can recommend to everybody. It is about screenwriting, but 90% of it you can apply to uh, writing novels. And um, for me, this book has everything, uh, everything you need about character building, but also about writing scenes and, and so on. On. I, I have I have my copy and it's, it really looks bad meanwhile because I have I have read it so often or looked up stuff in there. So for me, Robert McKee is is really it's that's my personal guru. I, I learned most uh, of my craft from him. I'm wondering if either of you would like would like to read a little bit of your work. We can do that. Yeah. Okay. Um. So we heard a lot about Metatron the uh, villain of Behind Blue Eyes. And I think this is a scene which um, shows him pretty well uh, in, in various ways. So that's why I picked it. His fingers stopped at two books. Then he turned toward her, watching her closely as he quoted, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Nephilim was stunned. This was a quote about animals, yet she clearly understood what it meant and why this book was banned in Olympias. A place where everyone was equal, where all burdens of inequality of the past had been eradicated. Race, religion, cultural identity. Yet with a closer look, some people were still more equal than others, superior even. She was unsure what Metatron wanted her to say, what he was thinking by quoting something like this. One wrong word could mean her end. Or was this what he really thought? She turned away from his gaze and studied the book closer instead. George Orwell, Animal Farm. She read the author's name and book title aloud. One of my favorites, Metatron said and pointed at the second book from the same writer with the cryptic title of 1984. This one is even better. He paused for a second, then quoted, Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present? controls the past. I think I understand why these books are banned, Nephilim said slowly. Do you? I might let you read them sometime then. Only inside these walls, of course. You will understand I can't lend them to you. Since they aren't being printed anymore, I might never find another copy if they were lost. Of course. Metatron looked her in the eye. I have one more quote for you. One you might want to remember. If you want to hide a secret, you must also hide it from yourself. He stepped closer and took her face in his hands, stroking it gently. I hope you enjoyed dinner, my sweet, intelligent Nephilim, he said softly. Because now it's time for me to enjoy dessert. I'm sure you know that. He came even closer and for a moment it seemed he would kiss her. Suddenly, he grabbed her by the shoulders and smashed her against the wall between two bookshelves with such speed and force that the shelves shook and the wall suffered deep marks from the impact of Nephilim's titanium bones. Before she could react, he was on her, pressing her against the wall. Nephilim hardly believed what was happening here. She was strong and fast, superior to any human and most other angels, but he was much stronger and faster. 
Whatever augmentations Metatron was wearing, they were much better than anything she had. She wouldn't stand a chance against him. Awesome. Thank you, Anna. I have a passage, but it is the passage with the cat, so I don't know if that's what you guys want on your podcast. Otherwise, I might need to dig it. I mean, deeper. I think it might be great for readers to have, or for listeners to have an example, since we've been talking about that. <laughs> All right, well, mm, trigger warning. It was the twitching that got her most. Venus had been staring, paralyzed into the tall, unkempt lawn of her backyard. Seconds. Perhaps hours had passed since she stood motionless, her fingers shaking, unconsciously mimicking the jerking motions of her cat's back leg. Sherbet was dead. He had to be. The unfortunate creature was lying on the damp ground, drops of dew surrounding his body like glittering jewels. At first glance, she didn't recognize him. His smoky black coat of long, soft fur had been removed. In fact, every bit of skin had been flayed from his body, leaving the cat a mass of glistening red sinew and muscle. His ears had been torn off, his eyelids and whiskers removed. His tail, a glorious feather duster that he'd so proudly swayed as he'd walked through the house, had been reduced to a bony rope of pink and red strands. The only thing left to identify her pet was the nylon collar around his neck. Whatever had murdered and mutilated the animal wanted to make sure he was recognized when, he, when found. It wanted Venus to know what she was seeing. His back leg kept twitching, a tiny back-and-forth motion that was probably caused by some deaf reflex. Venus knew that. Any number of post-mortem bodily functions could occur. Gasps, coughing, spasms in the extremities as rigor mortis set in. Despite that academic knowledge, the twitching punched at her heart with every movement. Eyes wide and unblinking, her vision blurred by tears, Venus crouched down to inspect her flayed cat. His big green eyes seemed to be staring at her, plaintive and confused. She observed his tiny chest, glad to see he wasn't breathing. She reached out, fingers shaking, to touch Sherbet's neck. She held her breath for God knows how long and sighed in relief when she found no pulse. Venus looked up. She had a vivis, vivid awareness of her surroundings. The low hum of a distant lawnmower, the smell of morning humidity, the wet dew on her knees. All of it cut through the haze of her distress to remind her exactly where she was. Her eyes settled on the backyard shed, looming only a few feet away. Scottish blood from three generations past boiled in her veins. Her beloved but dim-witted pet had been attracted to the shed, probably by the smell of the birds that had perished inside. There he had made, met his fate, at the hands of a monster made of shadow and blood. Awesome. Yeah, there's no coming back from from that as a villain. Anna, do you want to tell us where to find you online? I'm on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, on Instagram, 
on YouTube and uh, I have a website um, and of course I have my books on Amazon. I would love to connect. So if someone wants to say hi, do that. Twitter is always a very good uh, way to, to do that or simply uh, subscribe to my newsletter. It comes with a free short story um, in my cyberpunk universe. So if you go on my website, you can subscribe to my newsletter there. And um, it's the easiest way to, to, to be in touch with me. Simply reply to any of my emails and um, I will reply back. So, um, yeah. And we'll go ahead and put links to all of that so it'll be easier to find you. Yeah, thank you. My, my, my name is a little bit complicated to, uh, to write. So um, if I just say... Look, look for my name. Look for Anna Mosikard. Okay, I'm the only one with the name, but still, it's it's easy to uh, to write it wrong. So <laughs> better with a link. I, I know the feeling. And JF, where can people find you? Anytime that you anywhere that you search for JF Dubo, that's JF D U B E A U. You'll either find my website at jfdubo.com, and then you can there you can find links to all my social media. Or if you search for my name uh, just in Google or on in most social media, you'll find me there. Um, the one thing I do want to bring attention to, if if you don't mind me plugging something, is. No, um, if, if you want some uh, much lighter horror, what we like to call, call cozy horror, uh, with absolutely zero animal cruelty, uh, you can listen to my podcast, Aquilo. It's a, it's a cozy horror podcast. It's narrated by my friend Amy Frost, who is just an absolute genius narrator and voiceover artist. And we've got three seasons out. I tend to think it's very enjoyable and it's it's a good way to have a soft introduction to the kind of horror I like to write. That's great. We'll put a link to that as well in the show notes. Well, thank you. Oh, well, thank you both so much. This was a pleasure. I think this is going to be a really fun episode for everyone. I wanted to say thank you for inviting me. I had a blast with you. It was very, very interesting. And um, thank you very much. It was a Same. pleasure. Was, yeah, a thank you. It was great to meet you, Anna, and I'll, I'll make sure to, to check out your books. Thanks for listening to the Indie Writer Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and will subscribe to hear our future episodes. We want to thank the Writing Block community for the continued support. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or at writingblock.com, no K. Remember to subscribe, share, and tell your friends. Thanks, everyone, and happy writing.